The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Hey, you're still up. Still on LA time. Right. So did you find your mystic meteor? No, no, um, trail went cold. Guess you're stuck here with us then. Come, come sit with me. Come on, just give, give me a chance. Just, um, for all time's sake. I have a, a question for you. And I would love a, a non-ironic answer. What happened between us? Why did you move to LA? You know why. Uh, tell me again. Because you gave up. You read all those terrible reviews on your magnum opus and you couldn't move past it and I couldn't stick around and watch. But you know what? Now I think I understand it. What do you mean? I had all these plans, you know, to change the world. But this nonprofit I'm working for, everything we do seems so small and pointless. It's like nothing I do matters, so why try? Sweetie, no, um, everything you do matters. Every moment, every decision you make, it affects the people around you. It changes the world in a, a million imperceptible ways. No matter what your reality, you can make it better. We both can. I've missed you, Dad. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, March 18, 2021. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be We'll be hearing Robert Vaughn in conversation with Salim Mansour for the bulk of our show today. And the theme common to all the discussions you'll be hearing is one concerning our future political direction and how we can reverse it from the disastrous track we're on right now. If you're feeling pretty helpless as an individual trapped in a collectivist pandemic, you are not alone. And if you're asking what can one individual do, We'll try our best to answer that question right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated, and is what makes this show possible. Now, I understand that this coming Saturday on March 20th, there are planned freedom rallies around the world in so many locations, I can't possibly list them all, but there are literally hundreds of them already announced. Attending one of these rallies is one example of what an individual can do. The movement is called the Worldwide Rallies for Freedom, which is a great way to frame the protests. But you know... It's been my sad experience that people very rarely rally for freedom. What they're really rallying about is against some given form of oppression or other. And in so doing, they often fall into the trap of heading into another variant of oppression. 
But out of it all, this time round, it appears that some key individuals have been rising to the top of all the confusion and are beginning to call for actions and responses that may actually lead towards freedom, not merely away from a given oppression. Time will tell. Ostensibly, these ralliers are protesting against the lockdown and COVID policies of their governments, but more importantly, they are protesting against a majority of their fellow citizens, aren't they? People who are clearly in support of the lockdowns, and many are calling for even more. After all, this is a democracy, right? And if the majority supports lockdowns, then what hope for freedom? Here in Canada, there's talk of a looming federal election based on polls that our utterly communist Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will win a majority government, which is quite plausible given the fact that all of the other parties in Canada's parliament are on the same COVID page and on the same philosophy. So where can individualists, those on the right, possibly turn for actual political representation based on their principles and values? Well, to kick off that conversation, on this side of our upcoming bumper is the voice of Polly St. George from her February 4th commentary on looking for a leader that will possibly resume law, order, and justice. While on the return side of the bumper, a very interesting development in London, England to keep an eye on. And when we return, Robert Vaughn will be in conversation with Salim Mansour about his experiences as a conservative fighting for freedom and his frustration with attempting to do so inside any political party that calls itself conservative. I'm going to play, I think it's about a minute and a half, of Dave Cullen's recent video that he released. This is a truly dark time that we're living through, and I fear the darkness has only just begun. Humanity has psychologically just lost it over the past 11 months. And right now, where I live in Ireland, the mass compliance has only increased. The Irish public are showing no signs of waking up or realizing that something is very wrong here. Most people believe there's a deadly disease on the loose and trust the government 100%. They trust the media. The propaganda and conditioning was hugely sophisticated, well planned out. The vast majority of people have essentially been initiated into a cult and they don't even realize it. It's a spell, a trance, a powerful form of hypnosis. And when you try to explain the truth to them, when you try to reason with them, they either give you that fluoride, dead-behind-the-eyes stare, they think you're crazy, or they get angry with you, or they change the subject because you've made them physically uncomfortable. We're in a time of breathtaking levels of stupidity and collectivism and herd mentality. I don't know how to reach people. I don't even know if we ever will. I do know, because it's been said to me, that I have managed to change a lot of people's minds. Unfortunately, we haven't reached a critical mass. The question is, can we and will we ever? There could be a great awakening if you would just stop being so afraid yourself. Like you, Dave, I get letters that say that I've helped people. I get letters that say that my videos, you know, red-pilled people's parents or aunts or daughters or husbands or whatever it is. I get families watching me, and this is from all over the world. By and large, seeking truth, seeking justice, motivated to get out there and do the things that will work to restore the world that, that we want to see, a world of justice, a world with true leadership. 
a world that makes sense. We need to quote unquote, elect a new revolutionary political candidate. That's what we need. Have you ever had a new political party spring up where you are or a candidate that is somewhat revolutionary in their thinking? Um, and then have you seen over and over again, good people say, yes, that person says all the right things. I love their platform, but I can't vote for him or her because they have no chance of winning. You are making it so that the person can't win. You have set yourself on a losing self-fulfilling prophecy. This is how you have to think. Otherwise you're just constantly scared of your own success. Do you want to be a lone YouTuber for the rest of your life? Just saying, well, it looks really good. Um, but no way it's gotta be a trap. Well, then you welcome to the hell, <laughs> welcome to the hellscape. You'll never get out of, I say, have the revolutionary mindset. And maybe, maybe that's a pipe dream on my part, because, you know, like I said at the beginning, 98% of people need to be led. So what percentage of the rest, what percentage of that little 2% actually has the revolutionary mindset and the intestinal fortitude and the, the strength of character to withstand the smears and to see the COINTELPRO, to see the disinformation campaigns, the um, agent provocateur, to see it all, to see it all, no matter where it's coming from and have a good judgment to base your judgment on the, um, the trajectory, not the individual characters involved. Who has it in them to withstand the slings and arrows and the false flattery and to lead the people to that world where justice, law and order is resumed, where real equality, not this fake, phony, inverted, progressive equality, where that can reign again. I don't know the answer, but I really, really needed to get all of this off my chest. Today I sit down with Lawrence Fox, the UK actor and singer who launched the new Reclaim Party last summer in the UK. Free speech and open discourse are centerpieces of his platform. Well, how can you create decent policy without a full debate? Just today, Lawrence Fox announced he is running for Mayor of London. Well, I am going to stand to be mayor. Why? Well, I want to reclaim your freedom. He has been a harsh critic of woke ideology. It's a religion, it feels to me, a new secular religion, as Douglas Murray says, with no redemption and no forgiveness. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Lawrence Fox, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much, Jan, for having me. Congratulations on the run, of course. Uh, but you have a very, very specific idea behind running. I mean, for, for me, I, from what I understand, you know, winning isn't your goal. Sharing information is your goal. Tell me about this. Similar to America, the United Kingdom is really struggling with the principle of freedom of speech. Without the full, without full and honest debate, we will we will end up in a place where 
the, the whole center of gravity of d democratic um, communication is shifted so heavily over to one side that it becomes very unstable. And therefore, it's actually much more serious than people, you know, in England, we call it political correctness. But this is an extremist form of political correctness that has resulted globally in entire countries and nations being locked down without full scientific debate, with people being forced to wear masks without, even though it says on the box that this is not to protect you from a respiratory virus. And we're not being able to have discussions about our history, about anything for fear of offending people. And I think one needs to accept that the right to, you have the right to offend and you do not have the right not to be offended. You kind of make this connection between this sort of stifling of debate around, let's say, the issue of race, right, with the stifling of debate around the issue of, you know, what does the science say about coronavirus or are lockdowns a good idea or not or what kind of policy even is appropriate. And I find that I find that quite in interesting without necessarily even talking about what the actual right policy is. But so how, how are these things connected? Well, how can you create decent policy without a full debate? So there is definitely a, an argument to say, are lockdowns effective in any way? Because if you look at around the world, from Sweden to Peru, interestingly, you know, have very severe lockdown measures. In the UK, we're still under extremely heavy lockdown measures. And, um, and yet we've had very, very high number of deaths per capita. And um, so I think there's a debate to be had about whether lockdown is a, is a decent approach. It's not to say that my personal opinion will get in the way of that, because my personal opinion is an instinctive one and a moral one, which is that lockdowns are incorrect and wrong, even for a virus as deadly as Ebola. I think you have to allow people the freedom to look out. If you're, if you're seeing bodies pile up on the street, then you're going to not leave your house. And then in the same way, it's exactly the same with our cultural heritage. If someone says, we, this man was a slave trader, we're going to remove his statue and throw it away. How do children learn? How do we broaden the debate? Why not say, yes, this man or this woman or this person did do something wrong in our current view of the world, but wouldn't it be better to, to teach your children what happened? And also to be, to be intellectually consistent with that. So I think ultimately, without the freedom to debate and the, and the and the freedom to allow people to express themselves. It's through speaking that often we understand what we think, that um, all of these things are linked, everything, just through that debate, inquiry, genuine intellectual curiosity, not stifling of it. Well, and you uh, caught the attention of a, a very prominent, uh, at least at one point, conservative donor, Jeremy Hoskin, who is actually, you know, supporting the efforts of Reclaim and your efforts and so forth. Tell me about that. Yes, I was approached in a, in a sort of quiet way. And I said, would you like to meet someone? And I said, sure. And I went to an office and, and they said, what do we do about the problem? that's going on in the UK. And I said, I think it needs to be media because obviously I've been a fan of yours and I've been a fan of lots of American video casters, you know, in the modern, in the new media. And I said, I think it needs to be media. And he said, no, it's more dangerous now. We need, it needs to be political. It needs to be a political voice. And um, I think he actually turned out to be right. So he says to me, he says, if you, the only way you're ever going to be able to change anything in this world really is to threaten the people uh, threaten the government that you'll take their votes off them 
hence why I'm going to stand for the mayor. Because if if you think about it now, the um, the debate over coronavirus or the d- debate over statues, both of which are relevant to the UK. If I turn around and I say to the constituency in London, this is what I believe, I believe in broadening up the debate and I will stand against us being locked down and I will stand for preserving our cultural heritage. My my power to challenge the government and make the government change is much bigger than it would be as, as a political movement. There are many wonderful political movements in the world and um, there are very few political parties that are, you know, will have enough clout. So. I hope to grow the party and um, and you know essentially become. I want to make the. I want to make both political both sides of the political uh, spectrum be more sensible. That's essentially what I want to do. And if they won't do it, I will go and attack them where they're being very woke, where they're being anti-nation, and not patriotic. That's what I'll do, and I'll and I'll stand candidates there as well. If 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 they don't understand that people need to be represented there's 50 percent of this country that will not speak their mind for fear of losing their job they need look at they need representing too salim you vied to run for the conservative party of canada and you were rejected uh, for reasons that we've enumerated several times on the air and on youtube and that to you i thought was an epiphany that that was the end of your idea that the Conservative Party of Canada, just like the rhinos in the States, the Republicans in name only, are not friends of freedom. They're not friends of free speech. They're not friends of free thinking. They are a firewall between the individual Canadian who wants to be free, individually free, and an overpowering collectivist state especially now with Justin Trudeau in power, locking up Canadians, making them pay for it in hotels owned by China. (laughs) You know, we just cannot seem to break through. We as individual Canadians trying to live free, as long as a Conservative Party, the official opposition here in this country, is a party of elitism, a party of the left, and I'd like to, to pick your brain, you as a, a university professor who spent your life studying this, right? Conservatism, you as a conservative, small-c conservative person, a classical liberal, using your own definition of yourself, and I would agree with that as well as myself. How did we come to this point where all of the individualists in this nation and there's a lot of us, rely on a party like the Conservative Party and an Aaron O'Toole to save us when we know historically they never have acted as conservatives, small-c conservatives. They've always acted as a party on the left, as a socialist party, as a party of elites, as a liberal light. How did, how did that happen, that they usurped this name conservative yes trying to define conservatism and who is a conservative that there is basically no way to define conservatism because the conservatism is not a set of dogma or doctrine it is a state of mind it is an attitude 
towards life and therefore towards politics. It is attachment to certain principles in life to which you then want to defend in the public sphere. It is in some ways a love affair of the individual who is a conservative that you might call with his land, his country, that country's history, that country's institutions in terms of the constitution, the rules, the traditions. And it is that love affair that then becomes translated into political action, you know, in the sense of trying to maintain those things and ideas and institutions and values which one cherishes as something sacred. I think one of the reasons that if you ask, say, a Stephen Harper and today an Aaron O'Toole or people who oppose Donald Trump, if you ask them, what is it about uh, you calling yourself Republicans in, or conservative that uh, you opposed uh, Donald Trump and those people who had opposed Ronald Reagan, for instance, uh, or, or those in England who opposed Maggie Thatcher. Why do you stand in opposition to these people or to the values that they are standing for in public life? Well, one of the things that they will run away from is that if they don't oppose these people or what they stand for, then their adversary in politics and in public life, that is the Democrats, and the entire body of people who support the Democratic Party in, in America, that is the media, the academia, the business elite, and the same thing in Canada it would be. They will label you as a reactionary. And so I would say I am a proud reactionary because that's what a conservative is. Conservative is in public life, in reaction to the agenda of the people on the left. And a conservative should, by all logic and definition, should stand opposed to them. There, there it is. There's a fear of being called a reactionary and therefore not willing to stand up in opposition to the agenda of the left. And then by not doing that over a period of time, and, and that period of time becoming then a historical era, the Conservative Party in Canada, for instance, have gone along with the left. And over time, it becomes indistinguishable from the left. And that raises the question in terms of definition, in terms of a reaction to the left. So what is the left? And that's where I think the challenge of definition lies. I really loved your email where you wrote, conservatism is not an ideology, but an attitude towards life and politics, a state of mind or thinking, a manner of living, a commitment to an ideal that is rooted in history, which transcends an individual in his time and place, and therefore continuity of institutions through which public life is mediated is important. And from this it follows that while change is a given, as part of our nature and as natural, conservatives do not make change a fetish to be sought or desired for the sake of change. Brilliant, Celine, because that, to me, sort of defines 
in, in opposition what large L liberalism here in Canada means. Instead of having a love of the sacredness of life and the continuity of traditions, liberalism, capital L liberalism, in this country is nothing but destruction. It's nothing but tearing down and destroying traditions and the, the rights of the individual. You may as well just have torn up the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the last year, as the Liberals have done. Liberalism is a death cult. I've always said that. The, the left is a death cult. While conservatives are always on the defensive, always reacting to somebody else's push, the Liberals' push. And if we are always on the defensive, these small-c conservatives, always on the defensive, won't we always be out of the halls of power? Yes, I mean, if, if we assume that the people who, I mean, we're talking about democracy, so that's a given, right? If the people who elect a political party to form a government are going to be always in a state of agitation with their living condition, whatever that living condition is and situation is, and they're always perpetually in agitation and want things to be changed just for the sake mm -hmm. of getting out of that agitated state of mind. In that context, the parties on the left will attract more attention from the people who vote. That is, they will be constantly offering them new ways of getting away from whatever it is agitating them. You know, they will take care of them in, the, in terms of their schooling. They will take care of them in terms of their health care. They will take care of them in terms of their housing. In, in effect, starting from wherever you are to whatever they will offer, is they will take care of the people by depriving the people of their own choice to make their own living. Right. And in that sense, yes, the conservatives are handicapped. And so an agitated state of mind of people will be perpetually seeking a way out of their own situation and grasping for what is offered to them by the left. Uh, unless the conservative can contend with that sort of situation and keep also making similar offer to the people they will be deprived of forming a government. So that's a given, yeah. And this is where we come into the real situation, not from the ideal situation of giving definition, the real situation. Both United States and Canada, including Great Britain, has over the last almost 100 years seen as a result of the two world wars, depression, and the Cold War, a massive expansion of state power. An expansion of state power means a greater control by the government in the lives of the people. And this expansion of government powers, which I would call corporatism, government making the investment through taxation, through control of the economy, meant that progressive conservative became a Me Too party, that we can do the same thing, but we will do it maybe with some different styles in some different version. But on the main issues that came to define Canadian politics, it was all driven by the central government, by the federal government, by the state, you know, both in terms of social investment, social entitlements, Medicare, then 
multiculturalism, bilingualism, all of these were state-controlled policy. By the way, Salim, both of those measures, the official multiculturalism and official bilingualism, came in under conservative or progressive conservative governments. I know that the multiculturalism was a purely a Trudeau idea, but it was implemented under Mulroney, a conservative. But you go back to the bigger issues, you know, the depression years. So the expansion of, of government uh, that took place during the interwar years, that is between the two world wars, were largely driven by the Liberal Party. And then the depression morphed into the world war. I mean, wars have led to expansion of government controls. And expansion of government control, the flip side of it is the diminution of individual freedom. You know, it's, a, it's almost like a zero-sum game. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And zero-sum game is an interesting way of looking at the fundamental flaw in what our governments are doing. And it's a perspective, though, that might lead some to reject the whole idea of government and democracy entirely, such as the self-described anarchist Michael Malice, who we shall be hearing from in the audio bite on this side of our next bumper. Now, of course, I object rather strenuously to anarchy, and that's a discussion I'll push forward to another day. Other than to note that anarchy is a condition that occurs not just when there's no presence of government, but when there is an omnipresence of governments. We already live in a condition of anarchy, a condition that also arises when governments cease to govern and instead begin to rule. That is just as anarchistic as is the notion of no state structure, whatever, and is just as dangerous, because when government ceases, so too does freedom. However, when it comes to his observations about the vast majority of the voting public, take heed, because it's a reality that everyone living in a democracy should learn to accept, particularly if you're planning to engage in political action. What conclusions to draw from this, I'll leave to you. On the return side of our bumper, Laurel and Tyler Thompson talks about her recent experiences with the Conservative Party of Canada. How do you avoid normlessness and meaninglessness within uh, an anarchistic society because if you're stripping back a lot of the previous institutions that people would have relied on to find their sense of self and both me and you are big proponents of personal sovereignty and upward agency and yeah. all that sort of stuff but it you know we have to concede that that isn't for everybody some people require those bigger structures to hold themselves together how would you propose supporting those people Oh, I don't support them. I don't care about them. They're ballast. They're, they don't really... <laughs> ballast. They are. They're, they bring nothing to the table. And, you know, if they were in uh, maybe Iran, they'd be radical jihadis. And in, if they're in Britain, they're this. In America, they're this. They don't really think critically. And that's fine. But in terms of what can be done for them, I mean, I, I don't really know. I can't empathize with, with them. The, whatever system works out, they will just... Oh, obey whatever is the rules of the game, you know, and live this kind of docile, cow-like life. This is something that I stress a lot with, you know, people who are followers of mine. They're like, look at all these people who are mindless. And I'm like, how are these mindless people a threat to you? So they're like trees. Are you like, well, we can't win because there's all these trees. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? Any population, an enormous, percent, enormous percentage of it is going to be with people who really 
are in a very fundamental way mindless, who have no kind of inner voice, who are opposed or incapable. This is a big argument. Are they opposed or incapable of thinking critically? Ed Shell Mencken, the great American kind of cynic from the early 20th century, has this great quote about the average man does not want to be free. He simply wants to be safe. And I think you're seeing that a lot more in Britain, sadly, than in the States nowadays, how they really want to be told what to do. Uh, it's not only frustrating to be surrounded by it, but it's also maddening in the sense of like, how are you like this? Like, th we are so blessed with so many opportunities and you just want to watch, you know, uh, Celebrity Big Brother and whatnot and, and just, you know, have a pint and then go to bed. It Not is... that there's anything wrong with that, but that's their highest, that's their highest aspiration. I, I love trashy TV. I love having a drink or whatever, but there there's a time and a place for both. So there could be an election coming up, you might have heard. Well, I guess that Aaron O'Toole has not had a bump in the ratings that most people experience when they become a leader of the party, they get voted in. And you get kind of that rise, that rush, that honeymoon period, and that hasn't really happened. But he has been, like all of the conservative leaders, this is the, the issue in Canada that's a real problem. Call me crazy, but some people think that little tiny babies in the womb are significant. So here's what's been happening in the Conservative Party of Canada. For the last two to three years, they have been icing out any MP candidates who believe in life. So we have a big war going on in Canada. We have those conservatives who are fiscal conservatives. So they believe in, you know, uh, running the economy very well. Stephen Harper would be this type of person where he left the the country in good standing financially for Justin Trudeau to take over and decimate. So he did a good job in that way. But the other side of conservatism is that you believe in these issues like life. So this is the Hill Times, okay, writing this yesterday. So they're going to have a big convention here, and it says that a prominent anti-abortion group is vying to get support from elected delegates across the country to force a vote on a constitutional amendment at the Conservative Party's upcoming policy convention that would empower writing associations to veto the leadership's decision on nomination contests and to fire MPs if members are unsatisfied with their performance. You know, have y'all um, voted an MP in and you're pretty shocked at who they supported in the last leadership bid because the people, like you elect an MP because he's pro-life, he's got good conservative values, and all of a sudden, oh, shock of all shocks, oh, he's supporting the pro-abortion, parade-marching, pro-conversion therapy ban dude. What? No, I, th I thought that I gave you my vote because... I thought you were going to represent my values. So a plurality of the EDA Electoral District Association Board or its membership may veto any decision by National Council and or the leader preventing a candidate from running in a nomination or election. So what's actually happening is that an EDA, so an Electoral District Association, will choose their best candidate. And they'll say, this is who we want. 
And you see, I know this well because this happened to me. It happened twice. It happened in New Westminster, British Columbia, and it happened in South Burnaby, where with the Conservative Party of Canada, the EDA in both of those places thought I was the best candidate. But the National Council, because they knew that I was kind of outspoken. So what happened in the Conservative Party of Canada was, even though I was chosen as the best candidate by two electoral district associations, the National Council said no. And they chose other people who lost. And when I went up against Jagmeet Singh, and this is a, a really interesting journey that I went on. But when I went up against Jagmeet Singh, I went with the People's Party of Canada. Maxime Bernier got it. He still gets it. He's still ahead of the game, above all leaders, okay? Also, I will say, Rod Taylor with the Christian Heritage Party, same thing. There are certain leaders who do understand that lockdowns are not good, that lockdowns are harmful, that going against women's rights with these transgender rights that obliterate women. Some people get that. And some people get that a conversion therapy ban that outlaws good counseling for a teenager that doesn't know which way is up and cannot even by law get a tattoo should not be deciding that they want to change their gender. Some leaders actually get that. But apparently not the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. So they have systematically uh, iced out and eliminated good candidates based on what? That they're pro-life, that they stand for these values, uh, that they support men and women, and the distinction, the beautiful distinction between them, the legitimate scientific biological distinction between men and women. And so here, here is what this article is basically saying is that we got a big problem. We have good candidates and we have a Conservative Party of Canada actually not willing to run them, but those are what we thought were the Conservative values. So they are tanking. People are now saying, I, I hear from them every single day. What are we going to do? How are we going to vote for these people? Well, I heard a fantastic um, interview with uh, Maxime Bernier where... I mean, he really gets this stuff. He really does. He always stood for this. There are other options. And it does not look like if Trudeau... Trudeau's... Isn't his ratings up? Like, he's up 30... 30%? Three? Three? Yeah, 33? <laughs> so Trudeau is doing really well. It doesn't matter that he's put the country into economic chaos and that he's giving away billions of dollars. Like... Somehow Trudeau, is it his hair? I don't know. So it doesn't look like we can beat him. Not with a strong conservative party or anything. You said at the beginning in your definition of conservatism that it is not an ideology. And I take that notion and then I look at all of the internal struggles and problems that the conservative parties in Canada over the last hundred or 150 years, have gone through from John A. Macdonald calling his party the Liberal Conservative Party, changing it to Progressive Conservative Party, the breakaway of Conservatives to form the Bloc Québécois, the breakaway of people in Ontario's Progressive Conservative Party, like Randy Hillier, whenever they talk about something that was 
against the doctrine of the leader of the progressive conservatives in Ontario. Like, there's no free speech in Ontario conservatism today. These infighting, public displays of infighting and conflict constantly through 150 years of conservative party history probably reflects the fact that they are a party in search of a political ideology, whereas the liberals have always been the liberals. They've always had this liberal policy of, as we mentioned before, change for the sake of change. And so here we are in Canada today. We have Aaron O'Toole in charge of the Conservative Party of Canada. And given the history of duplicity that Conservatives have always shown towards their supporters, vote for us, we'll do this, they never do it. It's been a party of deceit, a party of lies, just to get power. They look at people like you and I and our friends, small C conservatives, classical liberals, individuals, looking for individual freedom, and they lie to us to say that, oh, we're conservative too. And then they get in power and they keep everything that liberals or NDP or other parties have done they even implement their own left-wing socialist policies and we're supposed to vote for them again? Here's my question to do. Are conservatives stupid? Because <laughs> we, we keep voting these, these people in because of the name. I mean, if you talk about lies, conservatives are liars. The biggest fraud is that the Liberal Party is not about uh, liberty. It is about government. It is about state. It is about the expansion of government. And it is through the government and the expansion of government that the Canadian state, uh, in terms of the French-English divide in its original situation, has been kept together, the compact. And the French side of the equation, that is Quebec, has been basically corporatist right from the beginning. And in that, in that context, People like yourself and myself and others who have been members of the Conservative Party or joined Conservative Party. I haven't been a member of the Conservative Party. We had no, no, no place to go to. So we ended up hopefully joining and hoping that we could make some changes within the party till now we know that that is not possible. You know, it's a learning process. There has to be a, a party that stands up and, and there are certain principles that you hold on to. And, and those principles are the principle of family, faith, tradition, that you hold something sacred. And what we hold sacred is those ideas that emerge out of the age of enlightenment, you know, that actually built what the West is. Okay, so that, that brings up the, uh, the notion of the People's Party of Canada, now led by Maxime Bernier, who... Thankfully, and I, I didn't know that I would say this, thankfully is a Quebecer, a French-speaking Quebecer, because if a People's Party of Canada started from, say, an Albertan or a, a, somebody from Saskatchewan or, or the Maritimes or whatever, that would have been thought of as totally alienating Quebec and the French. But because Maxime is a French-speaking Quebecer, he has embraced exactly what you're talking about. The ideas of the Enlightenment, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of movement. He is totally opposed 
to all of the, uh, the measures that we see today uh, for health and safety reasons. The only party in Canada to do that, other than perhaps the Freedom Party of Ontario. But now that we have seen through 2020, in hindsight, <laughs> so to speak, a shifting from an Aaron O'Toole and a Doug Ford, PC leader in Ontario, right? People, conservatives, are saying enough is enough. Is the past year enough to make us small C conservatives migrate towards Maxime's People's Party? Or will people like us, the individualists, the enlightened child of the Enlightenment people, will we um, always be the rump of Canadian federal politics? That I don't think that we should remain a rump if enough Canadians do awaken to what you are pointing out. That is, this past year of lockdown and curtailment of our freedom in every way and the destruction of our economy. So we have wrecked our economy, small business. We have deprived our children. I mean, a child who's five years old, 20% of his life has been taken away from him. And, and can we come back? And in what way can we come back? If, if enough people seriously think about this, then there should be a revulsion against every single political party and leader that has been holding the reins of power from British Columbia to Prince Edward Island. But whether the people will do that or not is a whole different issue, you know. I mean, the interesting point, I mean, your observation about PPC and Maxime is fascinating. And I will quickly point out a few things. Maxime belongs to that tradition in French culture and French history that is the French part of the Age of Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment was a European phenomenon. So there's the English side of it, there's the French side, the Scottish side, the German side, and so on and so forth. The French side is very rich, very impressive. Because we are speaking about the English side, we don't talk enough about the French side. So for instance, the greatest exponent of democracy in America, the very book titled Democracy in America, in terms of freedom, in terms of enlightenment values, is Alexei de Tocqueville, you know, the most fascinating historian, political philosopher, and an activist. And he came from an aristocratic background. So it was not about democracy, it was about freedom, that is liberty, you know, that he was talking about. And he came to America to look into that aspect of it. And, and there are so many others, you know, Bastiat, for instance, was, was again a man, an amazing French thinker, Frederick Bastiat. Uh, it would be a different history, I, I would argue, if Quebec did separate or if Quebec was an independent state, a French state in North America. Maxime stands out because he has embraced the Federation and he wants to walk the path uh, and is walking the path of maintaining the Canadian state and the Canadian Federation together. And in that sense, he is, in so many different ways, 
the reincarnation of Wilfred Laurier. I would say Wilfred Laurier was the greatest liberal prime minister of Canada. Liberal, not in the party term I'm talking about. I'm talking about liberal in terms of ideas and values. You know, in our breathing. So we don't think about it. We breathe. If we breathe to live, we don't stop and count how many breaths we are taking, you know. It is a natural function. And so to be a conservative is a natural function. Everything else then is artificial. It is a lie. It is a construction. And a conservative stands defending what is natural and reacting against the lies. Whether the lie is branded as a conservative lie or it is branded as a liberal lie. Anything that diminishes freedom and the place of freedom in the life of an individual, the life of a country, the life of the land and its people is then the breath that a conservative takes and opposes any diminution of that. That's what I would say is conservatism. And if we could translate that into political action, if our leaders could have the courage to stand up for that, as Donald Trump did, as Ronald Reagan did, as Margaret Thatcher did, as Abraham Lincoln did, then, you know, we are not a minority party. We are the natural party. We don't have to have a brand called conservative party. In fact, the moment you say conservative party, then you know that you're entering a castle of lies. Most of what's wrong in this country today originate from Ottawa. We have a huge country with very diverse regional cultures. Instead of having one size fits all policies, imposed by Ottawa, we should have autonomous provincial government that answer the needs and the wishes of their citizens. Ottawa should only take care of national and international issues on which we have common interests. The rest should be left to the provinces. This means all federal intrusions in provincial jurisdictions such as healthcare, education, housing, local infrastructures should end. Ottawa should transfer tax points instead of conditional grants for healthcare so that provinces are financially autonomous and don't depend on Ottawa anymore. We should allow provinces to take over management of programs such as provincial police, pensions, manpower training, or immigration selection, like Quebec did. Provinces must be responsible for their success and also failures of their own policies. And of course, we should reduce, we should reduce and reform the equalization program to put an end to the culture of dependency and encourage provinces to adopt policies that favor economic growth. And all that, that's the program of the People's Party of, Power of Canada. That's what we are proposing. And if I had to write the question for the upcoming referendum in Alberta, it would be, do you agree that the federal government 
should stop all intrusions in provincial jurisdictions. A majority yes would start the ball rolling. And by the way, this radical decentralization proposal was the other major reform of the Federation proposed by the Reform Party in the 1990s. If Preston Manning had focused on this instead of the Triple E Senate, he might have received more support or some support in Quebec. Who knows? If Preston Manning had taken this road, perhaps he would not have felt the need to, to uh, merge the Canadian Alliance with the progressive conservatives to get more votes in the East. And in doing so, bring the Red Tories back to life. Just think about that. Tyranny, the total domination of the individual, it's certainly not what democracy prevents. It's what unchecked democracy inevitably produces, actually. If your liberty is subject to a simple majority vote, then liberty is dead. Our country's founders were keenly aware of that truth, so it's tough to argue that democracy was the intent, or at least unchecked democracy. It's not that the founders were speaking in favor of it. Instead, they spoke at length about its inherent threat to liberty. In Federalist 10, the Constitution's author James Madison described how democracies empower the passions of the majority to sacrifice the minority or the individual. Writing, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been incompatible with personal security and rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. John Adams added that democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. And why? Because majority rule without rights first means rights will be trampled. When rights are trampled, there will be resistance and ultimately revolt. If your rights aren't inherent and are instead subject to a simple majority vote, things will get messy. That's why Alexander Hamilton wrote, real liberty is not found in the extremes of democracy, but in moderate governments. If we incline too much to democracy, then we shall soon shoot into a monarchy or some other form of dictatorship. Declaration author Thomas Jefferson is claimed to have said democracy is nothing more than mob rule, where 51% of the people may take away the rights of the other 49. And that's the key. Again, this is a what is the purpose of government question. What is it designed to do? What is it designed to protect? Why is it installed in the first place? Jefferson, of course, famously wrote in the Declaration that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that government is instituted to secure these rights. In other words, protecting your rights is the primary purpose of the state. And sure, we have democratic elements in our system, how we select our leaders and how we pass our laws, but those mechanisms are pursuant and secondary to the government's primary purpose, securing your rights. The Declaration doesn't say that government is instituted to serve majority whims. The Declaration doesn't say that all men are subject to the tyranny of others so long as there are more of the others, and for good reason. Because serving the majority above all 
is not government's purpose. So yeah, we can elect our leaders democratically and we can pass our laws democratically and we can do all this while claiming to respect the rights of the individual. But because these two interests will inevitably come into conflict, we do have to pick one. So which is more important, the will of the majority or the rights of the individual. And I know this feels a lot like high school civics or maybe earlier even, but it is crucial to reacquaint ourselves with these concepts because what was a universally agreed upon foundation for our country is now trending on Twitter as a controversy. A significant portion of people have minimal understanding of these ideas. And some of these people are in positions of government power themselves. Of course, that was Maxime Bernier on the previous side of the bumper, while on this side, we heard Matt Christensen, one guy who really understands the nature of freedom and of government. The purpose of government is to protect individual freedom of choice, not to restrict it. That's Freedom Party's statement of principle, and it defines how this purpose was arrived at. Quote, every individual in the peaceful pursuit of personal fulfillment has an absolute right to his or her own life, liberty, and property. End quote. And of course, freedom of speech is a critical component of freedom parties and the PPC's basic platform. Now the bottom line to all of these discussions, it's this. The only way, other than an outright resort to violence, to turn things in the right direction is through direct political action, either by becoming a candidate in an election or by supporting a political party that fields candidates in elections. Protesting and rallies are great and necessary, but they very rarely affect governments until, as Lawrence Fox suggested earlier, you threaten to deprive them of actual votes, even if those votes are few in number. You wouldn't believe how possessive other political parties are of every single vote. And remember, political parties are not themselves democracies. They are private associations that compete in the political marketplace. The fact that voting is always an integral part of any collective organization does not make that organization a democracy any more than voting on a board of directors makes a company or corporation a democracy. Just as voting should be limited in a democracy only to those issues that do not affect individual rights, so too voting in a political party cannot be allowed to override the fundamental purpose or objective of the party. I mean, if you don't like what a particular party represents, trying to change it from within is the most futile exercise I have ever had the displeasure to witness for the past half century or so. And it's also not the right thing to do. Don't do it. Look elsewhere. Needless to say, we've got a long discussion ahead of us, and in these pandemic times, even such discussions are considered effective political actions, especially by governments and politicians who always resort to censorship as their means of persuasion. So be sure to avoid both their censorship and their propaganda by joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Pretty obvious what's going on around here. It's a conspiracy to help Arnold Ziffo evade the draft. There's no conspiracy. I'm telling you If you that. tell us once more that that's Arnold Ziffel, you're going to end up in jail. <laughs> that is Arnold Ziffel! <laughs> He's a man for 
from the IBM said you shouldn't say it, by then you shouldn't have said it. It's not the IBM, and this is a free country. I can say what I want to. Then why are you in jail? 